0: Open and outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Ophthalmology is unique in many ways, one of which is the tendency of this specialty to run in the family. I'm sure we can all think of at least a few related ophthalmologists. For most of us, ophthalmology is our passion day in and day out. Unsurprisingly, that devotion can be contagious and sometimes end up getting passed down from one generation to the next. For doctors VK and Leela Raju, not only was a love of ophthalmology hereditary, but so was a dedication to public health. I recently sat down with his father-daughter team to learn more about their charitable work with the I Foundation of America, their views on various healthcare systems around the world, and their thoughts on how both parent and child can end up being one another's mentor, all inside this episode of Off The Grid. Ophthalmology Off The Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz and welcome back to another episode of Ophthalmology Off The Grid. Uh, today I get to interview um, a friend and her father who is a new friend, Dr. Lila Raju and Dr. VK Raju. And uh, Dr. VK Raju originally came to the United States in 1976, but a piece of his heart, I believe, was left in India. And ever since Coming to this country, he's made multiple pilgrimages back to India and has done just an amazing amount of charitable work there. And so I wanted to catch up with VK and also Leela, who's had the opportunity to follow in his footsteps as a cornea specialist herself at NYU, and talk to both of them about the evolution of their charitable um, contributions in ophthalmology. So that being said, uh, Leela and Dr. VK, thank you both so much for spending some time with me tonight.
1: Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us, Gary.
0: So, uh, Dr. VK, I'd love to just start with a little bit of background, if you wouldn't mind, just giving us a little bit of your story, perhaps talking about your training and uh, your, your trip over to the United States, coming here, and then how you began coming back to India to
2: uh, start doing some of your charitable work. After finishing MD in India, I went to actually England. I did all my ophthalmology, residency, fellowship, training and uh, exams, you know, called FRCS, Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, Right. and I was about to go back to India, but uh, did not happen that way. And I was offered, I was uh, planning to do a fellowship in microbiology or uh, biochemistry, basic sciences, even today is my love, basic sciences and public health. Uh, truly, I love them. So, I was uh, applying for an uh, NIH fellowship, and uh, somebody was very much in favor. I said, uh, Application, there's a fall there filled weekend next year, you know, with application, and next uh, June or July, you will be the first one to get into microbiology fellowship. But three months later, I was offered a uh, uh, faculty position in West Virginia for corneal transplants. This is 76 December, no, October now and December. Then I came and I didn't uh, rest his story. I was about to leave after one and a half years to Chicago or California. I didn't leave and I feel I'm glad I'm in West Virginia 40 years now.
0: So you came to West Virginia and you decided that that was going to be home.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely, yeah, it became a home. I didn't decide. It became And after that, never looked back, right, went on a holiday after coming here and and London, you know, I was in London. I went on a holiday, a farmer came from the village to show his eyes. I didn't have any instruments and I felt like a fish out of water and uh, I just forgot about that one after coming to United States. It will open all kinds of thinking that's United States. And I did the first I camp in 77, first visit holiday in India, and then numerous camps. I made 140 trips to India and 25 other countries, including quite a few countries in Africa. You know, Lila also went to the, I mean, Ghana. I did not go. We have a major program in Ghana and soon in Vietnam. So we have two institutes in India. We always... My mentor used to say in London, there are three solutions for every problem or any problem. First is education. Second is education. Third is education. I keep learning and teach and teaching is one of the best way to learn. So the foundation is in 25 countries.
0: So this started with a love for public health coming to the United States. And thinking I can do more, you know. Most of us, I have to say, you know, in in my American upbringing and background, um, I found it quite challenging to just go through residence, you know, medical school and residency and starting a practice and starting a family and all the normal um, things that we think about being stressful. But you've somehow found a way to do more than than just the average person in ophthalmology, which I think we're all overachievers, anyways. How did you how did you find time uh, to organize and create these amazing centers for charitable work back in India?
2: Well, working together works. I think you know this is momentarily those frustrations will be there, but as long as you want to do, for example, let's say uh, some uh, sit down and watch football for six hours, I feel I don't think I have time for f- football, but. I have time for others. It's always your interest. My mother always used to say, when you start a habit, something of what you like, you keep on doing the same thing. And in Eastern philosophy, the foundation's work is just the beginning. So tell me about
0: your early days and a little bit about the evolution, how you you went over and you started doing uh, the ICAMP model, where you would set up and do screenings and do surgeries, and then you'd tear everything down and and go. And it was sort of a lot of labor just getting everything set up, and it was not as sustainable or as comprehensive as you would like. There were times when there would be mothers with children that you would have to turn away, and I I know that was super, you know, really hard for you to do that. Um, But tell me about how your model started and then how it maybe has evolved.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, initially it was the problem, but later. Other doctors locally, I mean you know, some of them uh, my juniors, some are seniors, they were very attracted to it. At this time, at that time, we could not get the instrument, the first acutome, the vitrectomy instrument. Actually, I took it from there because I was stunned to see in 77 and 78 the pediatric eye problems. At that time, India was still that uh, socialistic model, everything is smuggled, you have to bring by smuggling and the customs, you know, they did not allow anything to come in from other countries. And I first I took that acutome instrument, vitrectomy instrument was a biggest beginning for me. And things have changed in India too now, you can take such instruments. I just, you know, a couple of, uh, last year I took two lasers, just portable lasers, you just walk in and go through the green channel and India has changed in the last 18 years, incredibly. In I always feel Indian Ophthalmology and Academy of Ophthalmology really work together. Yeah, They're doing some together, but really well, we can bring the world without childhood blindness. That is the dream. Of the Eye Foundation of America, World Without Childhood Blindness.
0: So it sounds like that's a major passion for you. Um, Leela, give me a little bit. I know you've been involved in this for quite some time, you're taking trips yearly. Give me a little bit of your perspective growing up in a household where your father's an ophthalmologist, but also you see his passion. Um, and that passion has to be contagious, um, a little bit. So tell me about what it was like growing up, first of all, with a father who's an ophthalmologist and then secondly, getting to participate in his passion projects.
1: I'm very lucky that I think I had a built in mentor for so long, even from the beginning. Um, and, uh, my joke is that, uh, the brainwashing was complete as a child, uh, because not only did I go into ophthalmology, I also became a cornea specialist on top of that, uh, but I think that when you asked about how do you figure out your time, how do you use your time when you want to do something like this, I think the probably most important thing that was instilled is that it becomes part of your vacation. Uh, every time we went, we were uh, lucky enough to still have a lot of family in India and we'd see them. But I would also know that we were, you know, dad was going to the hospital or, or we're going to uh, do some sort of eye camp, so it was always mixed in and I think that in ophthalmology in general we tend to be uh for better or for worse we our our work in uh really feeds into everything we do we tend to um even our our non work uh interests sometimes have to do with the ophthalmology because we enjoy the overall uh either the mental part- aspect of it or um like you, creating a whole company uh, because you were interested in uh, what else you could do in ophthalmology or someone like my dad who decided, well, I'm going to do international work as as the part of the other part of my life that will allow me to give back. So yeah, I was always very lucky. I got to watch surgery from a very young age, either here or in India, and understand kind of what the differences are. In the healthcare systems, uh, even now, I tell residents that go, or anybody else that's interested in getting started in international work, I think it's a wonderful gut check for us right. uh, in the U.S. because we tend to get so wrapped up in all of the paperwork details that we have, or the new rules, or the new expectations based on EMR, and you sometimes feel like maybe you're lost a certain part of that practicing medicine that we all hopefully went into ophthalmology for. And then I go there and I get to see these people that are patients that if I wasn't there to be able to do it, or we didn't, or we didn't have somebody there to be able to uh, see them, then they may be going a long time years, maybe even in some cases without getting uh, care. So you go there and you see that, you're like, great, I feel like this is the impact that I really want to make. But then you also understand the, maybe the restrictions of what you're doing for some people there. Right. You know, people traveling three days or two days to come seek care. Uh, And then I come back and I appreciate everything we have here. So it's just a wonderful balance for me. And I think it reminds me wherever I go that, there's wonderful things in both places and you can learn and learn from both systems or learn from both instances because it helps you kind of balance how you're seeing your day to day.
0: Sounds like it's a very, no pun intended, but a very focusing um, endeavor where you're, yes. you're, your big why of, of why you became an ophthalmologist becomes very clear uh, when you're in those moments taking care of those patients that um, would otherwise perhaps not not seek care when, Lila, when did you decide you wanted to be an ophthalmologist? When did that, was that just from the beginning? Did you ever question it? Was it, uh, that? no,
1: I think, uh, when, I think my dad can correct me wrong, but I believe I told him when I was five. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah. And he said, well, you can, you don't have to be an ophthalmologist. You can, you know, if you want to be a doctor, you can do anything. He's I was, And I told him, no, I'm going to be an ophthalmologist. Right, so, right. I'm not sure I even said it properly at that point, but right. that's okay. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the goal was there for me, a very long time.
2: Uh, Gary, let me come about the reserve word. She was said I'm a mentor. She became mentor in many ways afterwards. Now, I think, right. uh, yeah, she's a mentor to me too now. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> this is uh, well. I think it's it's very
0: interesting how ophthalmology tends to run in families. We have so many mutual friends, Leila, who. Um, it's just a, it's a family, it's a dominant trait. I've been, I've heard it said that your, your children have a 50% chance of becoming an ophthalmologist if one of their parents are. So it's a dominant gene, um, which clearly, uh, was, it was affected there. Um, lately you mentioned something and and VK, you're welcome to, I'd like to get both of your takes on this. It's very obvious that the American system um, is riddled with difficulty with regard to uh, paperwork and regulations and spending a lot of time clicking boxes and checking boxes and making sure that we're doing all the elements in the history, et cetera, for a level four exam. You know, I can go on and on. And then on the flip side of the coin, you have people where there's such an overwhelming demand for services Um, where you're really not even able to keep up with the demand in in India, where it's sort of the exact opposite problem. Talk to me a little bit about the two different, um, I don't even want to say systems, uh, but I guess in a way they're systems, but they're more environments to practice in. Um, And and give me a little bit of of your feelings on on each and maybe what you've learned from one system to apply to the other.
1: We are very lucky in this country to, while we don't, have universal healthcare in our expectation of it. I think what still we have to remember is that you can go in any, to any emergency room and you will be treated. They cannot, they cannot tell you no. When going to other countries, I'm realizing, especially my most recent uh, trip uh, to a new country was Ghana. And I remember seeing one of the patients with one of my friends who does oculoplastics, and they essentially told her, we can't do anything or nothing can be done. And while we still may have to say that, there was, at least, I think everywhere here, the perception and, and the reality that you can go in somewhere and someone will try. And then when I'm talking about, if we're going to into public health, we're talking about even people that are going to, you know, lose the eye. We will try to save the eye. You will go to surgery. You will, you know, they will try right. to do something. Um, that's not the case there still. And in many developing countries, either they just physically can't get there to that hospital, or by the time they get there, there, maybe there was something that could have been saved beforehand, and it wasn't then. So while I know we get frustrated with all the stuff we have to do here, it's also, it's also been born out of a system that has allowed us to treat more people And when that happened, I think, you know, costs go up with that. Do I think the United States, after seeing other systems, has swung, the pendulum has swung? Yes. Uh, We went from, I mean, my dad can speak to this a little bit more, but he tells me stories of when he first came and how much was being reimbursed for cataract surgery versus where it is now. We almost did so well that they said, well, it can't be that hard when we know that, It can be, you can very quickly get into trouble with cataract surgery, and then it's
0: uh, a very different scenario. There's no limit to how punishing and unforgiving the eye can be, as we can attest to. That's very true.
1: Absolutely. So while the systems teach me to be appreciative of the quality controls we have here, uh, unfortunately, you still do hear of stories where people have gone into developing uh, countries and gone to more rural areas, and because the follow-up wasn't there, or because the however, whatever they brought in may not have been the kind of equipment that we'd hope for. That you have, you know, cases of endophthalmitis that uh, for the whole, like all the cases then that day, developed oh, wow. into endophthalmitis, and you you want to be able to say that I want to give a quality of care that is not. Expensive for everyone. I mean, the holy grail of public health would be that, or any any kind of um, uh, care that we can give. But there's got there. There's always got to be a balance. I think perhaps in the United States right now, um, we've tipped to the other side because there's an assumption that we don't need to be doing what we're doing. Right. I'm not. I don't agree with that because I think for the quality we would all hope and expect for our own family. We do need these. These expectations are, are you know, realistic and hopeful because we'd all want the best we can. But understanding that someone else determining what the cost of that should or should not be is got to be a conversation that maybe more people are involved with than uh, maybe. More on the medical side that need to be involved with than they are right now. I, I, I wish I had a solution. I mean that could be <laughs> that would like I said I think it would consider it the holy grail. But understanding the quality of care that we have, um, I you know the it if you comes think at about a
0: cost, it seems. If, if, yes. you, if I'm summing up what you're saying, you know we have the quality because of the regulations. Um, If we didn't have the regulations, there may be a temptation to have a a lapse in quality. So I kind of I kind of get what you're what you're what you're going after there.
1: We also got to this point because we increased public health to the point where we were at a baseline level. There is just such a big difference dichotomy in other countries where that public health didn't bring everybody up to one level. You're just starting from totally different aspects.
0: Uh, vk I'd like to get your perspective on this as well. you've clearly seen a number of systems um, from London to the u s and then you've been all throughout the world what What are your feelings about uh, what Lila's saying about the pros and cons of regulation and quality versus um, being able to just do your job without constantly looking over your shoulder and making sure you've checked all the boxes just for the sake of of satisfying the regulators?
2: Absolutely. No, no. United States really taught the quality control to the rest of the world. No question. Because I practice in ophthalmology in England and I go frequently to England. But another biggest thing, if I have to tell Simplify in a couple of uh, words, expectations. United States people's expectations are different from other countries. In Britain, By our standards, we think that's not a good care. But a lot of people tell, oh, my doctor has done very very good care. But the same care, most of the people think it is not the good care. So the expectations are the biggest word here, number one. Let me ask a question
0: about that, VK. Do you mean, for example, uh, cataract surgery with residual astigmatism or cataract surgery with maybe you're off by a few diopters and the refractive results what do you mean by you know the expectations that they're, they're maybe a little easier to please in great great britain
2: and other countries too absolutely yeah. okay. absolutely Even in canada you know when they're comf- but here they hear so much in the newspapers so let take premium lenses mm-hmm. as though if you don't have a multifocal lens inoma some of my patients make some comments not all but some oh Am I not, why am I not getting why is the Medicare not giving that one? Right. That's how people expect in this country, which is good for progress. I'm not questioning that. But we were going too far. You know, the 15th century philosopher said anything, the dose makes it poison. In the ancient medical system of India, it said Mita and means balance. I think overall we don't really have that kind of balance and everything is exaggerated in such a way, but in England, for example, take England, the primary care and everything is excellent. A lot of people are very satisfied with that one. And if the cancer drug is not available or something a little rarer disease, if they are not exposed to, there will be a little bit news in the newspapers, by and large, people very happily accepted. This is a very young country. I give that reason for uh, that one. This is only 200 years old when we gave during that time incredible things to the rest of the world. And it is not like a society says ah, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. That is not an average uh, the character of United States because it is a very young country. One lady, when I was leaving England, she said, United States is the greatest country, wonderful country, but it is still terrible too two hundred years <laughs> interesting
0: so you notice you feel like you notice a an American spirit of always wanting a little bit more, a little bit better,
2: always a little dissatisfied exactly that one it is balanced well, I think that's the most important that's how the intraocular implant came in you know they were all fighting and you know the history 47 the first implant was done until 1960 they're all fighting the big stalwarts british ones and european doctors uh, surgeons they used to remove the lens and give lectures how the intraocular implant should never be done for it right. went on 15 13 14 15 years ago it is why they questioned the idea United States never questions the idea. They question why we are failing, you know? Why, how can we make it better? If we lose that character, we'll become like any other country.
0: That is really interesting. And not to get too political, but it's it's very interesting to hear that perspective right now. Um, I think America is trying to sort of find its way and find our place in the world and how do we continue to be great or to become great, uh, we could argue. But thank you for that perspective. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit, VK, about um, how do you provide high-quality care and keep the costs under control in your international model? I would assume as someone who is um, passionate about public health, that's that's sort of the holy grail of of trying to find... Um, High quality, but also low cost and accessibility. How have you been able to balance that equation
2: in in your clinics or hospitals? It can be done. You know, India, we can be a very good model for something of that nature. But uh, if we constantly worried about uh, legal and lawyer, we cannot do that. Right. In general, they don't worry about everything, you know, they'll do some informed consent and this and uh, some up with a common sense. Even some of those things are unacceptable in this country. You take a bottle of topical anesthesia in the operating room, it has almost like a one CC or two CCs, maybe the retinal surgeon puts a couple of drops, maybe two, three, four drops. And the entire bottle is thrown off. Right. If he uses some antibiotic, one bottle and surgery center, even in this country, we don't do it because the surgery center is not governed by the same regulations as hospital. And those regulations went too far and they all individually agree collectively still country to do that throw it, throw things off. Do you know how much I collect from my surgery center, the wax cells? Unbelievable. Right. cells in Afghan. we are trying to send, send to Afghanistan. Wax cell is a, is a part of gold in uh, Afghanistan. Wow.
1: So a lot of these are, uh, re- you know, we can sterilize using a process that uh, keeps them from you know, becoming wet or anything like that. Right. Uh, but uh, I would, I would want to add to that, the the other thing that we maybe don't focus on as much, partially because we already kind of have that bar set for us here already, is what I would like to call preventative ophthalmology, Right. Um, making sure that all the kids that need glasses get glasses, that you avoid uh, amblyopia and therefore avoid need for a strabismus surgery. You know we can p- always be better about screening, uh, but you know diabetic screenings always an issue. Uh, India specifically has tends to have some very bad diabetic retinopathy in very young people because of the phenotype of the diabetes. So, uh, being able to get to them and screen them earlier. Um, to help avoid them from going to the point where you have a 42-year-old walking in with bilateral tractional retinal detachments.
0: Right. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah, so
1: that kind of stuff. I think that that's the part where we're still working in a developing country versus the United States, because it kind of goes back to what I was saying, is that we've managed to get people—well, We all, well, we all see people that we know didn't uh, look for care or receive care as early as we would have liked to of them have had it here. but there you have to i think often go to the patients um we have a screening program where we actually are helping teach teachers how to look for certain eye problems so that even if we're not in there every year or uh even more frequently looking uh, doing school screenings if the teacher notices the kid squinting or one eye turning in Uh, then they can let us know and then we can get the student the appropriate care. But that kind of stuff, I think, is where you really get more bang for your buck when you're talking about doing something um, that has great efficacy and maybe doesn't cost as much.
0: Yeah, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, I think that's very, very true.
2: Uh, Since you said that, I just gave a talk uh, in a diabetic meeting. Today, we need pounds of prevention. (laughs)
0: yes yeah that's right we do need pounds of prevention you're exactly right VK as we as we sort of wrap up here I want to ask how can we help as a community of ophthalmologists who um, deeply care about not only our profession but about our world and patients who don't have access um, how can we help either financially or with education or perhaps with participating uh, in in a mission trip what's the best way for people to get involved
2: yeah I think you know the LASIK is still that kind of a refractive surgery is a wonderful thing. Even I did it on my son. I believed in refractive surgery so much. But from the beginning, it always bothered because I spent too much time in Kenya, in Malawi, and other in very formative years. First trip in Kenya, I went in uh, 81. The international ophthalmologist, somebody knew, and they actually surprised that he invited me. and I. We went uh, it's a marvelous uh, feeling i did not know so much about uh, things uh, you know internationally during that time i kept on giving you know, the lasik surgery i never charged you know any of you know the multifocal lenses the patient gives a check to the foundation and she can get some write off and each time i did a cataract I mean, uh, lasik surgery 40 children somewhere got glasses because, you know, the second most common vision pro- visual problem is children not getting glasses into our lack of spectacles. Wow. So still that continues. So each surgeon, once in a year, leaves one of his LASIK go to the foundation, well, to the Eye Foundation of America, if they do it reasonably, I'm going to fund from my retirement plan, match it.
0: Oh, wow. So you're going to match the donations that ophthalmologists give to the Eye
2: Foundation of America. And that contribution. Second is, 15% of the time, just at least once in a year, just to make a trip, come with us, and you help yourself. Then helping somebody, you're not going to change the entire world unless there is, you know, public policy and... You know, they always say long ago, some Australian sociologists said almost 40 years ago, anything to change really drastically in this world, we need political will, professional will, and people's will. Even people's will is also important. So we just keep on doing, but certain things like uh, certain organizations like Rotary, they got involved. I'm a Rotary member for the last, you know, so many years. No more polio because Rotary worked with the 10, 10, 10 major organizations, major governments of all the countries after 28 years of work, no more polio. And
1: then we're hoping that they'll also be interested in doing MMR vaccinations next, maybe, <laughs> because once again, we can help stop some pediatric cataracts if, because uh, most other countries don't uh, vaccinate. So there's still cases of rubella. And-
2: yeah, since uh, Gary, you said how we can. That's she said about MMR. Then uh, phenotype diabetic young people becoming blind. Some other countries, the real experts in this country, the top notch guys are there. They're too busy to get involved with uh, something like our Foundation of America. If they can, we'll get an anrorium for them too. Everything you know. Well, if they can get that best type of advice i think we can really get that uh, the people call that holy grail right you know coming from somebody who spent all their life in it their advice otherwise you keep on doing something yeah we did some and it makes a news but it did not have much effect at all if we can reach some of the the guy who is tremendously, you know, a knowledgeable and top-notch guy. He could advise the foundation with an honorarium, probably, you all people like you can bring that kind of thing to the foundation.
0: Well, VK and Leela, I just wanna say thank you sincerely for uh, VK, not only your leadership, but Leela also your participation in this. Um, it's, it's sort of like throwing a stone in a pond. You get to see the ripple effect of one small act, um, not only on one patient at a time, but on a community and on a nation and on eventually on the world. So uh, from, from you know, my bottom of my heart, thank you, VK, for starting this and Leela for uh, carrying on with it. And um, I would just like anyone who's listening, uh, I assume they can go to the I Foundation of America's website to find out more information, is that correct?
2: Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. This thing, I mean, like in India, more Gary's will do things like that, connect honestly everything that's happening. We have an incredible effect in India, too, because India, there are more ophthalmologists in India than United States now. That is the bigger organization today. But what you do is equally important, Gary, I mean I mean that from the depth of my heart. It's not just volunteers and all that what you do, connect to people and all that, it is equally important.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. VK and Leela, thanks again so much for coming on and sharing a little bit of your story. Um, And and we would love to uh, try to figure out ways we can connect people and uh, perhaps even go over and do a trip together someday. I think that'd be fantastic.
1: That would be great. Thank you so much for inviting us.
0: As parents, we hope that our children find their passion, something that challenges their thinking, motivates them to grow, and inspires them to improve themselves and the world around them. In some instances, we get to share that passion. Doctors VK and Leela Raju have a mutual dedication to taking their knowledge of ophthalmology at home and abroad and sharing it for the greater good. Their calling runs the family, but is inspiring to everyone around them as well. So I'd like to thank doctors VK and Leela Raju for the excellent work they've been doing and for taking the time to chat with us today. Once again, this has been Ophthalmology Off The Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. Catch you next time. Ophthalmology Off The Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.